We're going to get into the Word of God today, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is going to be our passage today. So we're going to run right into this and capture a bit of a shorter thought today. If we're trying to keep up, this is still part of what is known as the Great Digression. And Paul is speaking about the way this new covenant we live under works. And last week as we read chapter 3, we saw Paul basically bring his own commentary on Exodus 34. And the story of Moses being bathed and radiating glory as he came down the mountain with the old covenant in hand. And uh, he eventually had to wear a veil. Remember that? I know it works this time. I did this last week without protesting it. And, <laughs> and he had to eventually put this on because why? Israel couldn't actually handle the glory that was coming from him and, and, and had to kind of like say, you know what, cover up. <laughs> Paul's point is that this veil ended up being enmeshed into the hearts of God's people. And even after Moses, God's glory was clearly there in his law, but Israel still read it with veiled eyes, minds and hearts. Even as it is read today, the veil still covers the law, is what Paul wrote. Paul has already lamented in other places that he kind of wishes that they had taken the veil off, you know? That they could have seen God's glory fully revealed as they came face to face with Christ simply by what they knew from the law. But even after the death and the resurrection of Christ, this veil was still, sadly, firmly in place among the Jews and God's greater glory had still not been seen. But Paul makes his big point here that in the new covenant, the veil comes off. And just even as I read my notes, just taking one thing off like that, taking that filter off just makes all the difference. Paul writes that Christ is the only one who can take it away. Turning to the Lord is what makes that happen. And then we get to see God's greater glory, which is Christ, even greater. Not quite full. The word Paul uses there is contemplatively, right? We don't see God's full glory this side of eternity, and, uh, but we, we don't see it reflected off the face of Moses anymore. We see it in Christ, in his work, his person, in, his de- in, in the death and resurrection and all those things that come with his ministry. And as we behold the glory of the gospel, we begin to be changed. And we see some distinctives about the new covenant so far. You know, in the new covenant, we are joyful, willing captives to Christ. And as we've learned about already, this produces an aroma. In the New Covenant, we know that Jesus is writing our story. In the New Covenant, God is writing His law in our hearts. In the New Covenant, God's glory is being made clearer and more accessible to us. And this glory has a transformational effect on us. It anticipates the way life will be in eternity and and we become changed over, over time. Because we will be raised in glory. That is what is going to happen. We will all be changed. We begin to see some of that even now. There's plenty more to think through with all that. But um, we need to get into some more Bible today. So we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 4 today. And uh, just get some... um, Just uh, the first 12 verses today is what we're going to look at. 
So if, if you've got it, we're going to open up from verse 1. Here we go. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show them all, to show all that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. We're going to stop there. There's not enough time to get to the whole chapter today. I'll leave it at that point. Many of you are aware that, that Jen and I bought a, a home in the mounts about a year ago, a bit over a year ago. You may know from visiting in person or from our many Facebook happy snaps that it was a bit of a renovator. You've probably seen some of the before and afters and things like that. And, uh, and it still is to a degree. We're still doing work on it, and, uh, which is great because in my downtime, you know, when I get some, I like to be on the tools a bit. I kind of don't like to sit idle. It's weird. It's, I, don't, I don't put my feet up too much. If you come, you can actually kind of pick the work that's been done by Jen and myself. All right, the walls, the paint, the structure, even some of the infrastructure, yeah, that's kind of on me. So if there's a line on the paint that's not straight, blame me. It's my fault. If there's paint on one of the cornice pieces, which there is right now, I've got to fix. It haunts me every time I walk past it. It's on me. But making all that a home that is enjoyed and lived in. No one walks in going, I love the colour on the walls. Everyone talks about what Jen does. <laughs> she does it with, more often than not, using a multitude of these things. Stuff. Pretty little pots, and if she's in a blue mood, these come out. If she's in an orange mood, they come out. If she's in a silver mood. <laughs> but it's okay, because I sort of get bitten by it too, and I'm the one going, oh, let's, let's throw, add a throw to that. You know, I kind of get, I, I like get bitten by the bug, it's weird. <laughs> but Jen initiates the stuff that people in our house notice more. The little things. And she'll go, and people will go, gee, well, that's a conversation starter. Never mind. Look at all 
Never mind. I did the tiling. Yeah, no, never mind. Look at that. She, we, we had these things all over the place. And to be honest, a lot of these things that we have, a lot of these pretty things, are actually placed in spots in our house solely for their looks, not necessarily for their purpose. They're actually designed to hold things. It's a lid, but nothing goes in it. But if you go to our fridge, or if you go to our garden, or if you go to anywhere else, more likely to find plainer things. Like our fridge has plain glass jars of water. Our our containers for food are not very fancy. They're plastic or they're glass and and nothing nothing as ornamental as this. You don't go to our fridge and go, let's see all the ornaments. Even in the garden. We've got relatively simple, plainer stuff out there. I'm a little bit more minimalist, so I kind of like plain colours and stuff. Am I alone in that? Is that just a weird Buchanan thing or is that kind of the same? We've got pretty things that nothing gets used with and other lesser things that we use as actually what they're designed for. I hope I'm not alone. I hope I'm not weird. I'm coming back to this in a moment. Paul opens this chapter with the phrase, this ministry. And as he's writing this, it would appear that he's actually contrasting his this with some of the falsehood, the that going on over in Corinth. This and that. To him, there are very clear differences being implied and we see some of that in this passage and we've got a very clear, interesting statement in the middle of this passage that really stands out. This ministry, because it is more glorious and because it is a work of the Spirit, Paul says, because of all that, this ministry is something I am not losing heart over. In other words, he's thinking about the work in Corinth and he's not considering them a lost cause because a few people are trying to fall for tricks and silliness. He's going, I'm not losing heart. What I have is right. What I have is the truth. It makes me bold. It makes me clear. It makes me hold my head up high no matter what you say. And it makes me not stop in my resolve for your personal best. As far as he's concerned, this is a ministry that leads to righteousness. And we're about to find out in the next chapter that it's also a ministry that leads to reconciliation. This ministry causes him to be transformed. It's a transformed thing. We're all transformed by this ministry because the Spirit is at work. Therefore, secretive, shameful, deceptive and distorted ways, the things he was being accused of. No, I'm transformed by the Spirit. That's not those things. This ministry is delivered in simplicity. There's no complicated rules and rituals. It's just a call to respond to Jesus' death and resurrection. And 
There's a key word in there. He actually writes to appeal to conscience. And Paul writes that this ministry is all about the value of the message, not the messenger. By contrast, that message, the one across the ditch, was not any of those things. It relied on rhetoric, so it became manipulative and deceptive. In many cases, it was relying on the law and becoming complicated. It didn't have the hope and simplicity of the gospel. Whatever was being taught was not bringing life and the methods they were using to get it across were less than honourable. They would do things, they would gain credibility by doing what they can to damage the reputation of the apostles. They would aim to get credibility and traction in what they had to say by disputing the doctrine of, of those who had gone before. To get their message across, they would appeal not to conscience, but to carnal teachers, carnal senses. The gospel went for the conscience. They avoided that. They would appear to be better, more eloquent teachers. They would use methods the worldly entertainers and the philosophers and the sophists used. They would do all they could to look the Corinthian parts. They would, they would draw disciples to themselves because that's what Corinthians did. And they had no interest in making disciples of Christ. And they would claim that Paul's gospel and his character were inferior. And we know that some in the church were buying into this line of doctrine. Why? Because it was an easier road in some cases. It was a more religious road and those who kind of would rather Judaize their religion and actually kind of add some Jesus plus to them the way they do faith. Sometimes we get this weird thing in our head that, okay, this faith in Jesus, it feels like it's not enough. It feels like it's too simple. Maybe I've got to do other stuff too. It appeals to our senses, the fear, the, 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 the lack of hope that comes with that. Because if we keep doing more and more, it's not going to be enough. And yet Christ is enough. But Paul has other views to get across to, in all this, in response. He's already stated that the veil that came with the old covenant can be removed. The new covenant, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, it was more glorious. It was the revelation of that which the old, old covenant pointed to. It was the unveiling of the law. History tells us not many Jews in Corinth responded all that positively to Paul's message when he first went there. That The church that came about was mainly an ex-pagan Gentile-based church. And now there was a claim getting around that Paul's gospel actually veiled the law. He was making it unclear. And Paul answers that charge this way. He says the, the veil that spiritually covers the law, as well as the apparent veil making his gospel not get across to some, was not his or God's doing. Instead, another God was at work doing this, and Paul calls him the God of this age. 
This is the person that promotes idolatry, pride, unbelief, disobedience, all other forms of hostility to God. And yet mankind gives him temporal deity. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out who he's talking about here. But we can also deduct from this passage that Satan is not going to be the God of the age to come. He has power now, but it's coming to an end. And yet we let him blind us. We let him veil God's glory when it's proclaimed. We let him distract us from the light. In this passage, it's not God blocking the gospel. It's all of mankind being given over to ways that resonate with another deity who actually should have no claim on us at all. The God of this age is seeking to blind all who don't know Christ yet. And Paul has proposed answers to that later. Paul writes, he's not the one helping the blinding happen. That's something the false teachers are doing. And even today, that sometimes happens. Even in churches. Sometimes you hear gospels proclaimed that are not gospel at all. Sometimes you hear things that are said and it's like, hang on, that flies in the face of what Jesus talked about. But Paul writes here that God's light continues to break through. You know what? So what? Satan's hard at work trying to blind, but God's light is bigger and powerful. God's light continues to break through. You see, when our new covenant gospel is preached... Whether it's received or not, we need to understand that light is spoken into the darkness. Whenever you speak about the claims of Christ in any setting you are, you are speaking light into dark places. I love what we've heard today about mission work. I am the product of street evangelism. Why? Because a couple who had found the grace of God only a couple of years before spoke light into the dark cavern of an elevator. Light is spoken into darkness and blind eyes are made to see. And those that are able to see that light, those who believe this gospel, will see the glory and even, according to Paul here, the deity of Christ. And with all that unveiled glory there to be seen, Paul makes us ask a serious question about our faith here. And he asks the Corinthians this, What do you regard as treasure? Where are you getting your treasure from? Jesus talked about treasure. It's a good question to ask. The treasure Paul is referring to here is, of course, all the glory of this ministry, not that ministry. This message, not that message. And most importantly, the treasure is not found in either this or that messenger. Paul says we preach ourselves as nothing more than servants and we preach Jesus alone as God, as Lord, 
So the treasure to be found is the gospel. The glorious message of Christ's death and resurrection. It's a message that brings light. The message that displays God's glory. The message that reveals Christ. Christ as Lord and God. And Paul states that this true treasure can be found in simple, undecorated, honestly underwhelming $1.52 pots. Earthenware jars. We have this treasure in earthenware jars. Ordinary, unimposing, not all that flashy, nothing special, people who are simply being faithful to the simple yet glorious gospel of Christ. The guys over there in Corinth peddling and manipulating their wares, they're vessels too. They're well shaped. They look good. They draw the eye. They create conversation. They give off a bit of charismatic charm. They talk and present well. They make your emotions soar. People actually look at this stuff and go, oh, I love that. And go, yeah, that serves a function. They'll make your emotions soar and they'll capture you with showmanship. But the reality is that in some cases, ministers who claim an alternative gospel or preach less than Christ or get caught up in themselves more so than Jesus sometimes. And I'm at risk of this, that my ego has to be checked at the door every time I actually come into God's presence, but also every time I take this microphone. I don't want to be like this, but the reality is that some, the exterior experience is all the treasure you're going to see from them. What's going on inside? Take out all the flash, take the charm, the wit, the rhetoric, the appearances, the smoke and mirrors. And what do they have? Fluff. There are stories told of diplomatic communication during the Cold War. I, I kind of used to love reading this stuff. And, and uh, when I was young and, and I was 16, I actually worked in a bookshop and the Cold War thing was sort of just starting to come to bits near by that stage. And there was all this stuff that I just loved to read and, and hear about in those times. And there was sometimes a need to send diplomatic mail. And they would often use specialised envelopes and parcels Diplomatic mail, sometimes specialised transports, particularly if they had to get sensitive stuff across. Why? Because we didn't have computer hackers and social media and Facebook stalkers, but we did have people that could get into phone lines and, and crack different communication methods. And it was vital information being shared. If you wanted to find delicate info, then the most logical way to sabotage or intercept that stuff was to transport, just to get onto those transport routes or to get into those parcels and actually infiltrate or intercept those things. But history tells us that some of the most sensitive stuff actually got sent in the regular mail. So it flew, it flew under the radar. 
sent to people's homes and then actually transported to where it needed to be. If you want something to not be found, let it fly under the radar and be a quiet achiever. The gospel itself is glorious. In and of itself, the gospel is the treasure. The gospel is a sensitive diplomatic communication from the kingdom. And God uses the ordinary to deliver the extraordinary. He uses, he ordains the mundane for his glory. But, as we've just read, there's also a cost to all that. Paul speaks here of pressures and persecutions and the mark of death yet again. He earlier wrote that we have in ourselves the sentence of death. Being a Christian, being an earthenware vessel of his glory, is actually going to leave a bit of a mark on us. this, This old vessel is going to get knocked around a bit. It's no point making it a precious gold and silver jeweled thing because the, frankly it's just going to be beaten around a bit because the treasure's inside not on the out. He earlier, yeah, it's, I'll come back to his earlier quote there but it's actually an interesting tongue-in-cheek quote here. There's a Someone named uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, if you know her, of her. She, she, uh, I, I, I kind of was interested because her, her dad was a professional wrestler. But she became a, a quadriplegic, known for painting with a, with a, a paintbrush in, the, in her mouth. Written a few books and one of the quotes is this, the Bible could be no clearer. God does ask his children of every nation and walk of life to suffer. Only two places on this planet are exempt. A few acres in Southern California and a few in Florida. Both run by a friendly talking mouse who wears suspenders. So if it's not Disneyland, it's trouble. But unlike this position, in chapter 1, he's written about escaping Ephesus in despair and despairing of life itself and trodden down and, 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 and speaks of the, the, the how under the pump he was. Now he says the same things are there. But it's like hindsight has kicked in now that he's up in Macedonia there. Now he's quite vibrant and victorious about it all. Yep, we're pressed from all sides we're not crushed even if I was despairing and couldn't see it at the time here I am not crushed no longer despaired certainly not abandoned as long as I've got two feet and a heartbeat not destroyed being a vessel with that message has no cost it preaches no cost But it also has no hope. No resurrection life about that. 
being a vessel of this message. Even if it's not pretty, even if it's going to be knocked around a bit, even if it's got a mark of death on it, this is where the glory of God is. This is where the treasure is. This is where the real life is at. I'm going to explore more of this idea next week, but I want to stop and just actually ask some questions for us. As we consider a year of missional ministry, as we consider what it is we proclaim and believe, as we consider what we're inspired by, as we consider our own calling and what the Lord wants to do with us and through us in the year to come. Let me ask a few questions here. One, where are you getting your treasure? What influences do you have? What is the substance of those things? What is their message and, and, and where is the substance of that? I hear stories of some in this room right now who are going to very rich sources to get their treasure. And I commend that. Some are actually going further and going to study, which is awesome. Two, what treasure are you communicating? What is the substance of your personal faith? Are we trying to find a, a faith expression that is more akin to this? Are we finding ourselves wanting to really live out that gospel and kind of becoming enamored with it because it has no cost and because it, it looks fancier and it looks flashier and it kind of looks more attractive and, it, and it's just something that we get swept up in? The place where we don't have any challenges, the place where, we, where everything prospers, the place where, where our bank account don't run out because that's what the promise says apparently. The place where it's all style and no substance. Or are we knuckling down and going, Jesus, I want to find the real treasure. And if this is the call, friends, my final question, if this is the call to be an earthenware vessel for the Lord, how are you responding from that to that? See, some of us are intimidated by the idea of, gee, this thing has a bit of hardship attached to it. Some of us will shy away from being this because it looks hard. Some of us don't want to do the hard yards of actually pursuing the treasure that comes in one of these. Some of us are intimidated that all I have is this message of Christ. Is it enough? I don't want to speak and look like an idiot. Surely I can look the part and have the substance too, right? Jesus ordains the mundane. And he uses the ordinary. The faithful. The quiet achievers. The people who 
just quietly pray in their offices, who pray around their schoolyard, who walk around markets and pray before they say anything. And the stories of great revival and the stories of great hope that come, the stories of fruitful endeavours come from the ordinary stuff. There's life to be found in the ministry place that the Lord has put you in, even as ordinary as it looks. We have this treasure in jars of clay. How will that affect the way you engage with your faith? I'm going to leave it there at this time. I'll invite the band up, but let's just pause. Let's just bow our heads in prayer for one moment.